Well, I am thrilled to, to preach this final message in our series, Nothing But Net. And this series has kind of taken on a life of its own. And, and I do gotta say on the front end, uh, I don't have any notes for you today. And I know that can be frustrating and I, I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, sometimes it's nice when you have uh, verses on the screen or points on the screen, uh, but, but here's the, the problem. And, and here's what maybe you should know about me. Uh, I actually don't write sermons. Uh, so sometimes people be like, man, how do, you, how do you memorize your sermons? Like, that's, that's so impressive. How much practice does that take? And the secret is, uh, I just don't write them. Uh, I read a lot, I pray a lot, and then I just believe if it's in me, it'll come out of me. So I just uh, get up and talk and, and somehow it works out. And I, I try to at least give some sticky statements in a Bible verse that might uh, help the team follow along. But, but here's my challenge. Um, I find that if I ever have a PowerPoint, it feels claustrophobic to me. Uh, I can't explain it, but I'll, I'll get in a space, and for whatever reason, each service is just a little different to me, and I, I just sense the Holy Spirit kind of doing something uh, unique in the room, and I just have this sense that each moment is a unique moment, and I want to be able to, to respond to those things uh, without being married to a, to a PowerPoint. And quite honestly, in today's service, I don't fully know uh, where this will lead us. Uh, chances are you'll do something or look some way that will trigger a thought in my mind and, and we'll go chase it down. Um, but just know that my heart, and if you're new to Northview, is, um, is just to teach the Bible. And if you were to show up in my living room, I, I wouldn't give you a lecture. Uh, we, we would just talk and we would see where the conversation goes. And so that's how this is gonna feel. I, I find that uh, Holy Week... Uh, which is what we're stepping into. Uh, if you're new to the Christian faith, uh, this represents what we call as Palm Sunday. Huge celebration. Jesus makes his triumphant entry into the city and it is outstanding. He's, uh, he's royal and he's distinguished and he's brilliant and he is worthy of us marveling. And that's what happens. He enters the city and it's Hosanna, Hosanna. This is amazing. And you read it and you look, wow, look at our Jesus. The, the challenge in the church world is uh, we have Palm Sunday and then we have Resurrection Sunday. But folks, a lot happens between those two Sundays. And I think sometimes we, we miss the opportunity to educate, uh-oh, Check, check, are we good? Now you know the sermon's gonna be good. Satan's trying to hit the mute button. Man, I'm gonna preach the paint off the walls now. But here's what you find is, it starts with the celebration on Sunday. And then by Wednesday, the week takes a, a hard right. It was going good, and then it goes terrible. And celebration turns into devastation which I just wonder at all of our campuses, can you relate to that? Life was going good. It was joyful and it came with some fulfillment and it seemed to make sense and things were aligning and going according to plan and, and somehow out of nowhere, it took a right turn. That's frustrating. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. Sometimes it's irritating and perplexing. Why does life work like this? And where I find peace is following a Jesus who can relate to a tumultuous week. If you've ever had a tumultuous week, you should anchor your life to Jesus because he knows what it's like to go from celebration 
to devastation in just a matter of days. And so what happens is we, we gather around Palm Sunday and we gather around Resurrection Sunday, but what about Spy Wednesday? And what about Monday, Thursday? And what about Good Friday or Silent Saturday? I mean, I could preach. I honestly believe I could do this justice if I took an entire year and did a whole year on Holy Week to understand the depth, the weight, and the substance that is here. On Wednesday, the plotting and the scheming begins. It's, it's really gross, if you want my honest opinion. The religious elite, those representing God, those who are supposed to be righteous and holy, filled with integrity, start plotting and scheming to murder an individual. And then they form a strange alliance with the Roman Empire, which have you ever found in life, it's bizarre, but common enemies make strange friends. Common enemies make strange friends and, and there's this combination where these two begin to collaborate. That's Wednesday. Thursday is a day. It's a day that I, I don't know if I can fully reconcile in my mind. It's a day that I, I read and I, I, I try to immerse myself in, but I'm, I walk away still troubled by Thursday. Jesus, with the weight of the world on his shoulders, Jesus knowing what is coming his way, knowing that he's about to be betrayed, knowing that he's about to be publicly humiliated, knowing he is going to be, you know, horrifically tortured and executed. Jesus creates space. And Jesus has the composure and the emotional fortitude to host his disciples for one last dinner. How does he do that? And so he prepares a meal and he uses the meal to illustrate a gut-wrenching truth. He takes some bread and he breaks it and he says, this is, this is my body that was broken for you. And then he takes a cup and he says, and this is my blood that was shed for you. And while this is happening, who is seated at the table? Judas. Jesus knows this friend of mine is about to betray me. That's gonna lead to my death. And Jesus hosts him for a meal. To make it even more perplexing is our savior, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of you, stoops down on a knee and he washes the feet of his disciples. Folks, these would have been some Flintstone feet. Come on, wave at me if you grew up watching some Flintstones. Come on, wave at me, yeah. Those folks were pushing a vehicle barefoot. Come on, those would have been some tore up feet. Bunions and corns and all the things. And our Jesus gets down on a knee and he washes the nasty feet of some grown men, which I mean, this just flies in the face of, of all of us who have been presented the opportunity to serve the cause of Christ. Because here's the principle. If Jesus is Lord, 
which I believe he is, and if you're a follower of Christ, that's what you've signed up to. He's, he's Lord. If Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is above us, here's the principle if you wanna write one down. If Jesus is above us, nothing he did is beneath us. See, we, we get exposed, and this isn't a judgment because I see it in the mirror as well. I've got some preferences. I'm biased and I'm pretentious at times, and there are certain things that I'm not willing to do. Either I'm too important, too qualified, got other things to deal with, and more important matters. I mean, have you ever heard an invitation to serve and thought, oh, I just can't? Or I'm a little more qualified to do that. And here stands our savior. I mean, can you think of the objections he could have made? Guys, I'm not giving you a pedicure. I created the heavens and the earth. And in a few days, I am going to pay for the sins of humanity, offering anyone who places their faith in me eternal salvation. I've got more important things to worry about. And Jesus says, eh, I can still serve those around me. This is it's really beautiful to me. So he takes out this basin of water and he, he washes their feet. That's Thursday. And it's, it's all happening with Judas at the, at the gathering. I, I think this is really a, a true mark of spiritual maturity. I think true Christ-like maturity isn't the ability to love Jesus. It's the ability to love Judas. It's the ability to love Judas. Yeah, and I get the feeling some of you have had one of those at your table as well. To respond to hatred with love, that is the mark of a true follower of Christ. And I'm telling you, if those type of followers were to rise up in this world, we'd stand out as a bright light of hope. We'd make a difference if we responded to hatred with love. And then comes Friday, which we know as what? Good Friday. <laughs> and the only thing that makes Friday good is Sunday. Friday is humanity's lowest moment. You look at the arc of human history, it hits an all-time low on Friday. Religion and government and all the corruption, the, the motives and the agenda, it all comes to the surface on Friday. And it was terrible for Jesus, but it's really good for us. Our Jesus dies a vicious death, also that you and I could live a victorious life. It's, it's amazing. And Friday is then followed by what? Silent Saturday. Have you ever found yourself in your journey with Christ where it seems someone hit the mute button on God? You're, you're just, you're waiting for God to respond. You're, you're opening scripture, but it just doesn't seem to be speaking to you. Something's off and you're waiting and the silence is deafening. 
Come on, let, let that idea land accurately on your heart. Have you ever experienced a deafening silence? That's Saturday. And some of you can relate to that. But no, um, if you will remain faithful, our, our God is responsive to each and every one of us. But Saturdays are tough. And the whole time I'm, I'm looking at Holy Week, uh, I, I can't help but again, think of this idea of nothing but net and the game of basketball. What's interesting is um, I actually wasn't scheduled to speak this weekend. Uh, but, but I just, I, I'm, I'm having so much fun. Um, and there's just more I want to say. And in the church world, it's comical because there is uh, suggestive approaches to how to do this. And, and one of the approaches, which I don't know if I should tell you this, but this is just kind of my MO is I just say things others won't. Um, <laughs> it is suggested in the church world that on weekends of low attendance, the pastor should take the week off. It's, you know, that you should build your teaching calendar around the size of crowd, which I think is gross and shallow. Um, I, I never got into this for a crowd. God entrusted me with an opportunity to teach six kids the Bible, and um, that was just as fulfilling as this. And I've just I've learned to trust that God knows who needs to be in the room and who needs to hear the message, and uh, clearly you folks need to hear this message, and so I'm glad you're here. Um, but I, uh, I find that there's still so much in my heart I wanted to say. And I was thinking about all my favorite basketball memories and moments, which today is gonna be a big basketball moment. My guy's bracket is trash, but my girl's bracket is holding strong. And these Iowa Hawkeyes are the real deal. Come on, somebody. Caitlin Clark might be the best girl basketball player I've ever seen. Uh, I have nieces who run track for, a niece who runs track for, for Iowa, and uh, my wife grew up in Iowa, and so Team Johnson is all in on Iowa. It's gonna be a big moment. I, I, I've had a lot of big moments around the game of basketball. Uh, my favorite moment of all time around the game of basketball, I actually shared week one of this series, and it was a, a moment that I actually didn't play in. I got to spectate. I got to witness and experience a, a moment that my dad and my brother had, and it was, it was amazing, and I, I feel very privileged to have been there. Um, another favorite moment of mine was my eighth grade year, we're in the city championship. And it comes down to the wire, we're down by two. And uh, there's a few seconds left on the clock, and our coach, Mr. Hass, who was this big burly PE teacher, draws up a play. And I get the ball, and I throw it up from half court at the buzzard, and uh, I make the shot, and we, we win by one. It was a, it was a cool moment. Um, but without a doubt, my best games, my best moments, there was no crowd. In fact, there weren't any teammates. In fact, I didn't even have opponents. It was me in a basketball in a vacant parking lot allowing my imagination to run wild. And I would... I would fabricate in my mind all of these moments. And at the time, I was a, a big Michael Jordan fan. And Michael Jordan kept squaring off with the Knicks, and they had this petty guard by the name of John Starks, uh, who was always trying to contest Mike. And uh, so it just so happened, I squared off with John Starks a lot in that empty parking lot. <laughs> I remember games where I got injured. 
And I'd be playing like, oh, gotta play through it. You know how like, the heroes play injured. And, um, but every game came down to that moment. And maybe you can relate to this. You make a move and you start to count. Three, two, one, nothing but net. And then you, what do you add onto it? And the crowd goes wild. Come on, wave at me if you ever did the three, two, one, nothing but net. The crowd, I would drop to my knees. The crowd goes wild. I, uh, I think about that uh, when I think about Holy Week. And, and no, we're gonna bounce around scripture. We'll see how this plays out. And uh, it, it, hopefully it'll build and uh, maybe you'll get something out of it. Uh, but I, uh, let, let's start in, in Matthew chapter uh, 16. Yeah, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And this is fascinating. Jesus invites his disciples to follow him. Uh, he gives Peter this really creative invitation. Follow me and I will make you, who is currently a fisherman, into a fisher of men. Um, and I'm guessing all of Peter's journey was pondering this thought, what about what I'm doing resembles what you're doing? And Peter would go on this journey and early on, Jesus takes Peter and the others to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And recently we were uh, in Israel. We actually got to go to Caesarea Philippi. And I gotta show you some pictures. First, this is Kristen and I. We uh, were baptized in the Jordan River. You can go ahead and throw that back up. Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. And then there's this photo, which I probably should have showed this last week. This is on the Sea of Galilee. This is actually on the beach where Peter threw on his cloak, jumped out of the boat, swam to shore, and had breakfast with Jesus. That's, that's where they had breakfast. Uh, then there's this photo. Uh, we got to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, the very sea that Peter was throwing his nets into. But then we went to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is there and Mount Hermon is there. And, and it was known at the time as the epicenter of pagan worship. What the, the thought at the time was, is there was this God Pan and, and he kind of was king over all the other puny gods. And people would gather and they would worship all these idols and, and they would give themselves over to all this evil and wickedness and immorality. And this is, is where Jesus decides to take his disciples early on in the journey. And so we go and here's a, a picture of the cave at Mount Hermon. Now what was the case was this cave, uh, this cliff dwelling would, would fill up with water. And there was this continuous flow of water out of the mouth of the cave. And it would run into this pool at the base where people would gather and worship. And the idea was there was fertility. There was life in the pool of water. All these false gods promising life, which is still what happens in the world today. A lot of things promise true life. And uh, a lot of us give ourselves over to false worship. And 
This is the mouth of, of that cave. What's interesting is archaeologists and historians and scientists working together have gone back in time. And what happened was is there's an earthquake and the earthquake shifted the rocks. And so water no longer uh, flows out of, out of that rock, but, but that's where Jesus took his disciples. Uh, this is also known as the gates of Hades. Uh, which is a metaphor for the gates of hell throughout scripture. In fact, this is Kristen and I standing uh, at the gates of Hades. And it says in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, this is arguably the biggest, greatest, most important question in the entire Bible. He asked this question, but who do you say that I am? which I believe, this is a die for belief for me, and I know some of you don't have the same beliefs as me, and I respect that, and I would welcome a very respectful and polite dialogue where I would uh, share a, a pretty convincing case, I believe, as to who this Jesus is. He says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gets it right. Peter didn't always get it right, but in this moment, Peter gets it right. Sometimes he gets it right, sometimes he gets it wrong, and it just seems apparent that Jesus is aware that this is how humanity works. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong, and what is clear to us is he doesn't throw in the towel on Peter. And some of you maybe need to be encouraged by Peter's journey. There's gonna be times where you get it right, and there's gonna be times where you get it wrong. You should know that our Savior doesn't throw in the towel with you. He is patient in the journey and he will continue walking alongside you. Anyone thankful for the forbearance and the long suffering and the patience of our God? <laughs> Peter says, you are the son of God. And I believe how you answer that question is the most important thing about you as an individual. In fact, I believe how you answer that question has the greatest impact on your eternal future more than anything else. Uh, I know this is a narrow way of thinking, and I get that, uh, but there's only one Jesus, so call it as it is, it's narrow. Um, but I would rather walk a narrow path than a slippery slope. There is only one King, only one God, only one Savior, only one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ, and we've anchored our life and our hope and our identity to him. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And watch this. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, Peter, well done. You have an accuracy to your intuition. Build on that. Now watch what Jesus says. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Who will build the church? Jesus. This is where individuals like myself fall into a messiah, uh, messiah complex. We take on all this pressure and then we create these weird, uh, weird dynamics in local churches as if we 
believe that the, the church rises and falls on an individual apart from Christ. And it's, it's faulty thinking. In fact, it's heresy. Uh, Jesus made a promise, I will build my church. And the pressure is not any one of us. He does the heavy lifting. We all just get to be a part of it, amen? I will build my church. Now, some people will misread this and they'll think um, Peter uh, is the rock Jesus is talking about. Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, where are they standing? On the gates of Haiti, the rock of Mount Hermon. And in that tension, in that text, Jesus then says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus stands. He takes his disciples early on. Hey guys, before we get into all the teachings and before we you know, get to the resurrection and all the things that I have planned for you and before we launch the official church, um, I wanna take you to the epicenter of evil and wickedness and immorality and the gates of Hades. And standing in that text, Jesus says, hey, upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church. And the gates of hell can't prevail. Folks, what's the, what's the purpose of a gate? To keep something out. Jesus wants to know, hey, I've shown up and hell would sure like to keep me out. But folks, you should know I'm going in and Satan and all his legions can't stop me. This is quite the announcement of Jesus. I'm going in and he stands at the gates of Hades and he delivers that message. And I think that is brilliant, but I think the disciples still didn't fully understand what that meant. How are you gonna do it? How are you going to invade hell and snatch the keys and liberate humanity? How are you gonna do it? And so even when Jesus made predictions, they, they didn't see it coming. Jesus is betrayed. He's, he's handed over to the religious elite who uh, take their moment to abuse him and torture him. And then they hand him over to the, the Roman empire. And Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of the time, is clearly in turmoil. Him and his wife are perplexed by this Jesus and they recognize his innocence. Uh, they partly feel like they should help him out, but they recognize Jesus is uh, going along with the deal. They, in fact, try to get Jesus to like, hey, like, speak up for yourself, defend yourself, give yourself a case. And, and Jesus, he doesn't say anything. Uh, and I think that's great about him. And so Pontius Pilate gets this idea. There is the custom every year around this time, uh, the Romans would release a prisoner. And so Pontius Pilate has this idea. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to get the worst of the worst. I'm gonna go get the person who everyone knows should be in here. I'm gonna go get the person who's a criminal and everyone agrees they should be in prison. And I'm gonna come out before the crowd and I'm going to present them Jesus and this maniac. And I'm gonna let them decide. And clearly they'll see it's a rhetorical question. Let the innocent guy go free let the criminal stay in prison. But the Pontius Pilate's surprise, what happens? The crowd demands, what's his name? Barabbas. 
But if you're reading the Bible accurately, you shouldn't read Barabbas. You should read your name. You should read my name. That coming before the crowd is perfection and brokenness and the brokenness gets to go free while perfection pays the penalty. Oh, the gospel is, it's gut-wrenching. And so they demand Barabbas and Pilate's like, well, well, what should I do with Jesus? And the same people who days before are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, now begin shouting, crucify him. And the fickleness of humanity gets exposed. And so they demand that he's crucified in verse 24 of uh, Matthew 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Now, if you go into the original manuscripts and and you go word for word, what you will find is it'll say he took a basin of water and he washed his hands. And what's interesting in this final week, we see two basins of water. One, we see a worldly leader take a basin of water and wash his hands. Hey, I'm innocent of the deal. You know how weak leaders do. And then you have a heavenly leader who's like, yeah, I'm totally on the other side of the spectrum where you're using the basin of water to wash your hands. I'm gonna use it to wash others' feet. I mean, the the stark contrast between who in the world leads us and who on, you know, in the earth and in heaven truly leads us. Anyone just been amazed by Jesus's leadership? There's no one like him. So he washes his hands. They then hand Jesus over to be flogged and persecuted to the Roman soldiers. And watch what it reads. And guys, I'm gonna skip along. And depending on time, I might jump into other things. You gotta go home and read your Bible. You gotta read it. Verse 27 then says, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, as you're reading scripture, you have to let your imagination wander. In fact, whether you realize it or not, subconsciously, your, your imagination is forming a mental image of what is happening. And I love to ask people when they, when they gather Jesus or when you watch the movies like The Passion of Christ, how many soldiers were there? And a lot of times it's like, I don't know, 20, 30. But if you go through the history books, most scholars, now I've done a lot of research on this, on a very conservative side, they say 300 soldiers was the whole battalion. On a very liberal side, they say 600 soldiers. Uh, Either one is, is a lot of soldiers. And our Jesus, our champion, stands in the middle of all that adversary and all of those onlookers and persecutors, and he stands boldly, ready to rise to the occasion and accomplish his assignment. He's got a victor's look in his eye. I have this theory that when I watch a game, I can always tell if by the person's look in their eye when they're about to shoot the free throws in the big game, he's got it or she's got it. And they're gonna, they're gonna rise to the occasion. They're gonna get it done. And I can't help but think, what was the look in Jesus's eye? I just have a feeling while all these onlookers were leaning in, Jesus was focused on the moment at hand. He's ready, he's poised, 
and he's able to get the job done. So it says, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And they, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now, the crucifixion plays out. And what's interesting is uh, what we read next. It goes on to tell us, skipping ahead in verse 34, that while being crucified, they offered him, verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. See, see here's what we don't realize. We, we read scripture and we, we just go over the details. So they, they took a sponge that was immersed in a, a mixture of water, wine, and gall. And they put it to his mouth. And Jesus refused. And what we don't realize is the bathroom accommodations during Jesus' day looked a lot different than ours. In fact, um, a porta potty nowadays would be world-class compared to what they had. When we were in Israel, we actually got to see some of these bathrooms. And this is actually right on the side of the path. And so if you had to use the restroom, you would sit right here next to anyone and everyone out in the public while people were walking by and you would just, you would use the restroom. And not only would you have to sit next to other people, you'd have to use the same water as those people. In fact, you'd have to use the same cup to rinse yourself as those people. And as you can imagine, uh, this caused a lot of infections and illness began to spread. And so at the time they were trying to figure out how do we deal with this infection issue? And they started to discover that this, this mixture of wine and gall um, works as a disinfectant and it can fight off infections. The only problem was it was, it was expensive. Not a lot of people could afford it, but who could afford it? The Roman Empire. And if you're gonna be a strong empire, you need to have a healthy army. And so what they would do is they would provide this to their soldiers. And so when soldiers would go out for work, they would carry a bucket, their own porta potty along with them. And so sometimes people will read this and they'll think it's some tender act. Oh, they're trying to give Jesus a drink when in all reality, what you see is our savior being crucified and them putting their used toilet paper on his lips. This is gut-wrenching stuff. It's hard to read it and not, um, and not be gripped. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there and over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, which is the same temptation Satan gave him, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross 
So also, and this is where, again, people in my position, it's so gross and embarrassing, but we get exposed. So also, the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Folks, here's the deal. It's not that Jesus cannot save himself. It's that he will not save himself. Jesus has two options, to save you or to save himself, to save me or to save himself. And I'm so thankful. Oh, I'm so thankful that he doesn't buckle under pressure. My faulty humanity, I would rise up in pride. I would come down from that cross and I would prove to these puny opponents of mine who I am. Yet for whatever reason, he remains unwavering, unwavering in his commitment um, to save us. And uh, I, I think that's really great. I think it's really great that our Jesus is a savior. Um, because I need one. I need a savior. Anyone else, you need a savior. So Jesus is on the cross in verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was, was torn in two from top to bottom. Say that with me. Say from top to bottom. The, cur the uh, curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, I wish I had more time. And if you hang around our community long enough, I, I promise at some point I'll come back to this. Scripture just has a lot for us to discuss. But the temple was built in three segments. There, there was the outer courts, the inner courts, and then the holies of holies. In many ways, you could look at this kind of as your spiritual journey. Some of you, you're in the outer courts. You're still looking in. Uh, others of you, you're in the inner courts, but there's still greater depths and intimacy that you could have with God. And, and then there's the holies of holies. The, the problem was the assumption and the, the held belief of the day was no individual could stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God except the high priest. So only one person could enter the holies of holies and they erected this huge curtain. In fact, I read one article that said the curtain was six inches thick. I mean, who could rip that? This was a fabric wall to serve as a clear barrier. You can't go in there. So the priest would go in and they were so serious about this, they would tie a rope around the priest's leg. That way, if they heard him fall behind the curtain, nobody would have to go in after him. Uh, they, they could drag him out. And Jesus on the cross, he, he says arguably the most powerful statement in human history. He says, it is finished, which is a clerical term. It's, a, it's an accounting term. It's a debt term. Hey, hey debt paid in full, it's done. And, and when that happens, the curtain in the temple, the barrier that stood between people and God was ripped. And how was it ripped? 
Yeah. From top to bottom, if humanity would have ripped it, how would it have ripped? From bottom to top. Scripture wants us to know that in some decisive act, the hands of heaven eliminated the barrier standing between humanity and God to where anyone and everyone, including all of us and those we like and those we dislike, everybody now has access to this God. Everybody now has access to this God. It's amazing. And what else happens? It says there was an earthquake. In fact, when we were out in Israel, they, they took us to the foot of the cross. Um, the, the entire week, I, di I didn't feel like I was um, mentally and emotionally prepared for the week. It, it's just a lot to take in. And uh, as you observe the cross, they, they, they take you down to this exhibit where they, they show you the foundation. And um, I'm so thankful for the science community and archeologists and those who have devoted their life to studying these things where they show you the cracks in the rocks that date to the day Jesus was crucified. It's, it's really beautiful. What's amazing is this was such a big earthquake that um, the same earthquake, uh, well, you can find cracks throughout the region from this earthquake dating to the same day, the same earthquake. Probably the most recognizable place where there's the most evidence um, is at a place called Mount Hermon in, in Caesarea Philippi, where if you think of the pictures I just shown you, the water's no longer flowing because they say that after the earthquake, um, the faucet was shut off. And I love it because as the living water hangs on a cross, oh, he shuts the faucet off on all the false gods offering true life. He's amazing. He's, there's no one like him. There's nobody like Jesus, I, I promise you. Do your own academic research. There's nobody like my Jesus. There's nobody. In verse 54, I'm sorry. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this man is the son of God. Truly, this man is the son of God. And every single week, my prayer is that some of you, even if it's just one of you, would have that epiphany for the first time. Ah, oh, he's, he's God. And the hard thing about this for me is there's so much I want to say. I, I want to do a deep dive into every character. What was this like for Pontius Pilate and his wife? What was this like for Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off by Peter? What was it like for Barabbas? What was it like for Caiaphas, the high priest? What was this like for Nicodemus, the Pharisee who gives his life to Christ? Or what was it like for the thieves on the cross or maybe the centurion at the foot of the cross? What was it like for the soldiers? 
What was it like for the women who had the courage to show up when the guys didn't? There's just so much. And when you look at this story through their vantage point, folks, it comes to life. But in this series, whose eyes have I been looking through? Peter, this fisherman, who when Jesus finds him, he's casting his nets. And this is the kind of net Peter would have been working with. There's actually two ways of doing this. Most people assume it was by boat. And that was for the people who could afford a boat. What you would do is you would have someone on the other side and, and, and you would drag it. But most people didn't have a boat. And so they would wade into the deep and they would put their net over their shoulder and they would drag their net. And as they would do so, they would catch fish. And I'm wondering, and I guess the entire time Peter is looking at this and he's like, how does this in any way reflect or in any way look similar to what he's doing? How's he gonna use this? And I think Peter spent three years with Jesus, probably unable to figure that one out until Jesus picks up a cross and throws it over his shoulder the same way a fisher would drag his net. And he drags his cross through a city. And the entire time, he's catching people in his grace. The thieves on the cross and Nicodemus and all of them. The centurion, he's catching them in his grace. He's dragging his net. And I love this because as the clock winds down and there are seconds left in our Savior's life, he rises to the occasion. I mean, that's the goal. In the end, I want to be the guy with the ball in my hand. And I'm so thankful in humanity's greatest moment our Savior rises to the occasion, and I can't help but think, three, two, one, nothing but net, and the crowd goes wild. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. So stay to your feet because I'm going to let you go here in a second. But I tell pastors all the time who get overly concerned about being relevant, if you want to say something new, you should just read something old. There's really bright and godly people who came before us. You should pay attention to what they said. Horatius Bonar, who wrote a hymn, said this. "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, and in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan, 
Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. And folks, here's the deal. Until you realize that the cross was done by you, you'll never discover all that the cross has done for you. Until you take ownership of your guilt in the cross, you can't grab a hold of the grace found in the cross. Amen.